Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, June 7th, we're studying Jeremiah chapter 13, verses 15 to 27. The Lord calls his people away from their pride to give glory to him before he exposes their shame. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us the Reverend Dr. Jeff Pulse. Dr. Pulse serves as the Dr. Dean Owenthe Professor of Old Testament Theology and Director of Certification and Placement and the Director of Continuing Education at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Pulse, welcome to Sharper Iron. Thank you. Good to be here. As we get started this morning, Dr. Pulse, let's talk context. We're at the end of Jeremiah 13. What do we need to know about the prophet, his ministry, his book, going into the text we've got for today? Well, it's pretty important, the context, because the text is going to reference a lot of that context, so it'll help us understand it a little better. So Jeremiah as a whole, the whole book, you know, it's kind of set up in this whole time when the, the Babylonians are... Um, assailing the people of Israel, Jerusalem specifically, and there's three different exiles here that take place, and and Jeremiah kind of lives through all three of them, but he, he doesn't ever really technically go into exile. He was, he was against, well, let's just say the people keep rebelling against the governors that are set up over them. In fact, the last one, Gedaliah, is... Uh, assassinated. And then then in 582, which is the last exile, they uh, kidnap Jeremiah. The people are leaving town and they, they leave. They run away because they know the Babylonians are coming back after they assassinated their governor. And, you know, kind of interesting just on the side note is that we think we found where they went uh, archaeologically on this island in the middle of the Nile River, Elephantine, Oh, wow. They found some archaeological digs of an old temple there, and the temple had the same floor plan as the Jerusalem temple. So it's always been kind of a puzzlement where they went when they ran away, and now we think we know. At least that's the best guess as of today. Hmm. But Jeremiah, you know, he's a priest, of a priest family anyway, and of course also a prophet. And he, um, the first exile... Well, let's just say that that um, that um, oh Jerusalem, North Southern Kingdom has been a vassal to Egypt for a little bit, and that hasn't been so bad. But Egypt starts to fall apart and lose their their power, and they've been being a bit shaky. And so, in about five hundred and uh, I would say about five date what I put on there. I'd say about 597 BC, the Egyptians uh, basically lose to the Babylonians, and the Babylonians take over Jerusalem. And that, that whole southern area, and probably a lot, well, they've already got the northern area. 
So about 597 BC, and so there's an exile, but Jeremiah doesn't go. And uh, the Jeremiah gets to, I guess you would say, live through all of this stuff. But this exile is actually referenced in this text. Um, the queen mother, we'll get to that, I think it's in verse uh, 18 and 19. The king and the queen mother, these are the people who were in charge and went into exile, the first exile. Second exile is must, the most familiar one to us, and that's when they destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. In fact, Jerusalem was so destroyed you couldn't even live in it. So the third exile, actually, uh, they're actually set up in a uh, little town called Mizpah, which a lot of people know that name. But Mizpah is a little town outside of Jerusalem because Jerusalem was uninhabitable after that uh, destruction of the temple and the uh, and the walls, everything were just totally decimated. But the third exile comes out of Mizpah. It's at Mizpah where Gedaliah was assassinated then, and and then Jeremiah was kidnapped and taken away. So I mean, in Jeremiah's life, he's he's like he's got a bad, and he's always called uh, the weeping prophet or the lamenting prophet because he'll be doing a prophecy and all of a sudden he'll just break down and just literally vomit words on the page. This is just terrible. And I, oh, woe was me whining, whatever. And uh, But he has good reason. He's fighting against all of this and the prophecies he's been given are contrary to everybody else. And it's not going well for him. He ends up in the, in the muddy well for a while. He's in stocks in the city square. He's, he gets beat up by the, the false, well, the priests and his minions and false prophets. So, so he goes through an awful lot. And so you can understand why he might lament a bit as he goes through his book. Not kind of the the basic context here of, of what where this prophecy comes out of. So, well, as we go through the text, we'll be able to you know I'll reconnect in some of these things. But yeah, it's a it's a bit, it's a pretty difficult time for old Jeremiah. Mm. So. Certainly, a, a very difficult time for Jeremiah for the the people, particularly the faithful ones who, along with Jeremiah, would have listened to the word of the Lord. And and as you said, this text that we've got today is one of those in Jeremiah that we can put in a pretty firm, specific context. Many of the the prophecies that Jeremiah gives are a bit harder to nail down. Where do they fall during his very lengthy ministry? But as you said, the reference that we have in verse 18 about the king and the queen mother going off allows us to put this yeah. in a, a pretty firm spot. Yeah, this is probably King Jehoiakim, or Chin or Kim, depending on how you want to uh, transliterate. And then the queen mother is Nahashta. Hmm. We know this from 2 Kings uh, 24.8, but uh, this Jehoiakim, this new king, and new, I guess he probably... His father died, and he's he's the king at 18 years old. So having a queen mother becomes kind of important. She's kind of helping them. Um, he's, she's kind of helping him, uh, you could say, rule or reign or figure things out. But he only gets to be king for about three months, you know, before the exile, the next exile. I mean, he comes in, it's just all very 
you almost need a scorecard to keep track of what's going on. There's so much uh, unrest and so much violence and so much um, uncertainty. And there's always that foe of the north, as they call Babylonia. Um, the Babylonians, that foe of the north, just always right there hanging over your head the whole time. It just puts a, a real dark cloud over everything. Let's go ahead and take a look at the text we've got for today and see how this comes out in the latter half of chapter 13. We're beginning at verse 15. Hear, yes. and, hear and give ear. Be not proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness, before your feet stumble on the twilight mountains. And while you look for light, he turns it into gloom and makes it deep darkness. But if you will not listen, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears, because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. Say to the king and the queen mother, Take a lowly seat, for your beautiful crown has come down from your head. The cities of the Negev are shut up, with none to open them. All Judah is taken into exile, holy into exile wholly taken into exile. Let's let's pause there, Dr. Pulse. That was through verse 19. So mm-hmm. in verse the, the text begins, hear and give ear, listen, which we know the, the people of Judah have not been prone to do. And then <laughs> be not proud. There there's a connection to the previous text in the the matter of the the loincloth that Jer- Jeremiah was supposed to wear the Lord said he was going to spoil the pride of Judah, the great pride of Jerusalem. And here is the, the word, you know, don't be proud again. How does Jeremiah's preaching begin there in verses 15 and 16? Well, he starts out with some, I mean, these are very strong imperatives, you know, uh, uh, that declaration or a demand almost, uh, the idea here, you know, and give ear. And see Ozen in there, the word for... Uh, or ear, so that connected cognate there, and then that the negative of and do not, you know, do not uh, the the all there is your negation of your imperative. So yeah, it's very uh, what's the word? Do not be. It, it's like um, it's really a very forceful beginning, um. And then, you know, and then he launches in. The next verse, uh, 16, you get more imperatives, and you've got five or five imperatives going on here. Boom, 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 boom. And so it's just really a, 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 what a forceful entry into this particular, into this particular prophecy. So it really sets up what's coming, you know. It's not going to, I suppose you could, almost guess by the first two verses that this is not going to be one of those warm and fuzzy gospel texts. There hasn't been a lot of those so far in Jeremiah. (laughs) He's really not famous for them. I mean, there's a few nice things, the righteous branch and all that kind of stuff, but it's pretty rough. It's pretty rough. And rightly so, you know, as you as you look through what he goes through and what's going on around him. But there's always those glimpses, right, of of the gospel here. And we'll see some of those as we go through. But it's not that there isn't any hope. It's just that right now, 
you know this is this is what happens you the, the just rewards of your unfaithfulness if you will uh it's 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 pretty rough though pretty rough in verse 16 uh, you know with this he launches into this with these several imperatives the image that he seems to be putting in the minds of the hearers is the difference between light and darkness that the lord's going to bring darkness you're looking for light i mean even deep darkness what what's that imagery how's jeremiah using it as he preaches there in verse 16 well i mean he's um especially the people are looking for their um if you will deliverance from all the wrong places so you think that uh, you're looking for light by relying on this or focusing on that or listening to the false prophets, but the Lord really is bringing in darkness and you're going to, your feet will stumble. Um, it'll be gloom. Uh, and really, you know, this last part of the verse is, is very interesting. The, um, Matsalam eth weth. This is really a specific word that could be translated literally as the um, shadow of death. In fact, it's exactly the word that is used in Psalm 23, verse four: the valley of the shadow of death. This is this is the exact word that's used there as well. So, I mean, this is the darkness here is really. Um, yeah, it's a deep darkness in the sense that it, it's equated with death. That intense. Well, and unlike Psalm 23, where the Lord is walking with me through that valley of the shadow of death, yeah. here the Lord's actually bringing the shadow of death upon his people. Right, right. I mean, there's such a uh, reversal in the sense between the, between the two. They're, so, you know, Psalm 23, you read that and you get all, you feel good. I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a beautiful text for the presence of the Lord and his protection, his shepherding, et cetera, et cetera. And Jeremiah's is like the opposite. I mean, you're you're looking for the presence of the Lord, maybe in the wrong places, but no matter what, you're not seeing him. You, He's the one who's casting darkness upon you because of your, your unfaithfulness, your ungodliness, chasing after other nations, perhaps even other gods, although it seems like it's more of a national nation chasing for at the time of Jeremiah. But, you know, that's a complete reversal. Well, I, Isaiah, I think, makes use of this term as a way to describe people coming out of exile. I, I, I'm not positive it's the same Hebrew word, but the the famous Advent verse, you know, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light on those dwelling in the the deep darkness. I, I don't know if that's the same valley of the shadow of death, but it, that same imagery is used by Isaiah, and because sometimes Jeremiah doesn't give us the the gospel side, so I feel like I have to run to Isaiah sometimes for it. But but that so yeah. Jer, Jeremiah is communicating the the exile. Yeah, well, it, Isaiah though is talking about the even the uses this image of the shadow of death shall be swallowed up. You know, in his resurrection oh, yes. text, twenty-five and twenty-six, he's using these beautiful light and dark to even talk about the the marriage feast of Lamb and His kingdom that's set up on the on the holy mountain. You know, it's a yeah. great, beautiful resurrection text. But they're not picking that up with Jeremiah. Yeah, not not. Yeah. 
So, and, and the reason is because, uh, to move us into verse 17, because they're not going to listen. And and now verse 17, and this has been something that's sometimes challenging in the book of Jeremiah and really in, in a lot of Hebrew poetry to figure out who is speaking. If you will not listen, then my soul will weep, my eyes will weep. Is this one of those moments where Jeremiah is breaking out into lament? I think so. I mean, it's just, just typical for him to just, so, I mean, obviously, he's got um, a vested interest here in these people. They're his people. And so he will be, now, I mean, there are some questions about this, if that's referencing Jeremiah, or if it's referencing the Lord's reaction to the Lord's own action. I, I kind of think it, it's more, um, I think it's more Jeremiah weeping and going into one of his uh I don't know if Psalms of Lament or, or uh, portions of Lament right here in the midst of the text. He's very famous for that, obviously. And, you know, it's just like, uh, you know, after verse 16, he's got a, he's just got to uh, emote a bit. And, and you can understand that. Sure. The Lord's flock's going into captivity, you know, and um, yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's that. Uh, I was just gonna say. I mean, having talked about the laments of Jeremiah with other with other professors at the seminary, this is something that I, I think you know pastors cert- certainly understand, and even all Christians, that as we watch the people of God just descend farther and farther from whom the Lord desires them to be, even as as we are called to proclaim that word, you know, faithfully it's still difficult for us to watch it happen. And, and for Jeremiah, particularly to even, as you've been saying, you know, he's a part of what happens to them. So that lament is a really, I think a natural reaction for a, a prophet, a preacher, a pastor, and, and any faithful Christian. Right. Right. You know, he, I mean, not jumping too far ahead, but if you go to the very last verse after, you know, Jeremiah and his, his call or sending in chapter six or Isaiah rather, um, he um, he's told, here's your job description. Go to people, speak to those who will not hear, who will not listen, da 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 It goes on and on and on. It's terrible. But he and Jeremiah end, end there with the same words, how long? You know, and that's actually a beautiful gospel moment. It's kind of like one of those things almost every prophet. And it's a symbol of hope or a sign of hope. They know that God has made promises, so this can't last forever. So how long before you, you know, uh, keep covenantal promise or send the Messiah or rescue and redeem or return from exile, all of those things, that how long is is a, is a, a call on the promises of God that we trust that it won't go on forever. So Isaiah does it at the end of all that terrible section of his job description, and now Jeremiah says it here. He says it frequently, and so do other prophets. How long, O oh Lord? Not to—I I, want to come back to that, but just so we stay with the text, because I, I do think that's a fantastic right. gospel connection. It In verses 18 and 19, we come to that matter. We started off talking about this. You say to the king and the queen mother. Now, you said that's King Jehoiachin, or Je- Jehoiakim. He's got a couple of names, and his— the queen mother, yeah, that's his mom? That is his mother, yes. It's not his wife, it's his mother, yeah. And what was her name again? 
uh, it's Nahushta. It's it's actually to make it easier, I'll just spell it N E H U S H T A. Talks about her in Second uh, Kings twenty four. I think it's verse eight. You know, kind of gives you a little historical background to what's going on here. But yeah, these are they have been taken to exile. Um, and that's why he talks about them taking a lowly seat. Well, you're no longer king and queen in Babylon, for sure. Um, you can see the crown has come down from your head. Uh, yeah, there's all sorts of... And then you see the uh, reference in 19 then of that all of Judah has been taken into exile completely. You know, you have this emphaticness. All the Judas taken to exile, wholly taken into exile, are completely taken into exile, absolute. Hmm. So there's no, no, we've always had these holdouts, these areas. Jerusalem, for instance, has always been that stronghold that has avoided a lot of things. Well, not anymore. And they're completely, everybody, the whole southern kingdom uh, is taken into exile. Hmm. There, there's really no place to run and hide anymore we've seen that in several places in jeremiah even even at times where jeremiah will say jerusalem is not safe which is of of course what what ends up happening in 587 bc it if if this is you know 597 10 years prior then is this Mm -hmm. jeremiah saying what what you're seeing now here in 597 this is only a precursor of of what is to come that it's going to get even worse than this yeah, well, I think that's what verse 20 points to. You know, uh, you see that, lift up your eyes and see. And then he talks about those coming from the north. You know, um, he's not talking about those. Those. He's now pointing to the future here, prophesying that they're coming back, basically. And that is not going to be good. Now, you know, you're going to, this is where his prophecy gets, um, if you will, uh, hammered by the false prophets who say, no, what we need to do is rebel against the, the governor. I think it's Zedekiah. Um, let's rebel against him. Let's uh, depose him, and then we'll take over. And, of course, Jeremiah's saying, that's not going to be good. Look to the north. The Babylonians will come back. And they, of course, don't listen to Jeremiah. Nobody ever listens to Jeremiah, unfortunately. But uh, so, yeah, this is a, you know, this is basically Jeremiah is pointing them in these verses uh, 18 and 19, pointing them to what has happened. And then he's pointing to what's going to happen if you don't watch it because you didn't listen before. Okay, well, maybe you'll listen now, but it's not good. Hmm. And it's going to happen again, only it's going to be worse if, if you do these things, if you do not. And, and the Lord God's telling Jeremiah to tell the people, don't rebel. Don't, don't do it. Just stay and be a vassal, if you will, to the uh, Babylonians. Don't rebel. Hmm. And of course, the Lord God knows they will, but Jeremiah's message and don't rebel or the Lord will bring the foe from the north again. Hmm. And, uh, course we know that's exactly what happened but that's kind of what he's doing he's looking at the past which isn't very far past and pointing to what will happen if you do the same thing again basically 
similar anyway. Before we leave verse 19, just so that, because I know sometimes our our geography of the Holy Land is not always the best. Let's make sure that we're on this. The cities of the Negev, what's the, what is the Negev? That's kind of the southern area. And the Negev at various times has been on far, far south, but it's pretty much the southern area of uh, of uh, Judah. So, I mean, it's sort of like uh, a way of saying even... Because that's as far away from Babylon as you can get and still be in Judah. Even they have uh, shut up their cities. You know, they're, they're, you know, they are, there's no place from north to south, as far south, that isn't uh, affected or hasn't been affected, that isn't um, in, under the control of the Babylonians, basically. So, yeah, that's, I think they use the imagery of the Negev here because it's the southern part. Hmm. And they, and you see, come from the north. So it's the whole the whole of, um, of Judah. Could there also be, with some of the things you're saying at the beginning, referencing the Negev here, not only everything in Judah, Jerusalem, there's no place to run, but with the Negev particularly— also, Egypt's not going to come either. I mean, because the Negev that would have been if Egypt were going to, you know, come to the rescue. If if Judah thought maybe Egypt will help us, the fact that the Negev is shut up means they're not going to be there either. That there's no there's oh, no recourse. Yeah. Right. Oh, I think that's that's probably also a, a good point there because you know, the, and they they should know that because they were actually, you know, just you remember Josiah was killed in a battle against the Egyptians in about, I don't know, 609 BC. So not that much before this. And that really was when they became a vassal of Egypt for a while. And then Egypt fell apart and the Babylonians took them out. So yeah, there's, there's no hope from the South and they have relied on Egypt in the past. And even when they're told not to, in yeah. uh, as good a King as Josiah was, he was told, you know, don't uh, don't be uh, relying on Egypt, or don't be um, fight. In case of Josiah, don't fight against Egypt. The Egypt, the Egyptians technically weren't even on their way to Jerusalem to conquer it when this happened. They were actually on their way to Babylon, or to the north, to do battle up there. Of course, you know. You you always think, well, no matter what happens up there, it could be bad. So Josiah went out, I think it was the Valley of Megiddo, where he finally, where he died uh, battling against the Egyptians. But later, they tried to make, um, or no, excuse me, not later, earlier, they tried to make alliances with Egypt, and they're told not to do that either. What do they call that? Lord calls that the, uh, Egypt is that that broken staff that, yeah. that pierces your hand uh, language. Very interesting language. But they never, you you lean on them and you get hurt. Yeah. So there's not going to be any hope coming from the South. That's been pretty well uh, negated. But that's always what the people look toward. They look toward Egypt. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's an interesting pattern if you think Genesis even. Whenever there's trouble or a famine, you went to Egypt. Yep. You know, um, it seemed like Egypt, even though they were the, uh, what I would call the evil empire of the day, people still 
went there and sometimes God sent them there, but they were always going to Egypt uh, looking for deliverance from stuff, famine or something. Yeah. yeah, and and here in Jeremiah, the only deliverance is going to be from the Lord. And so he continues to call his people back through the prophet Jeremiah. And we'll pick up more of that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFU, talking to Dr. Pulse about Jeremiah 13. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, June 7th. We're studying Jeremiah chapter 13, verses 15 to 27 with Dr. Jeff Pulse. He is professor of Old Testament theology, director of certification and placement, and director of continuing education at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Paul's prior to the break, we're looking at the first few verses, 15 through 19 of our text. I'm going to go ahead and read the rest of, a, rest of it for us, and we'll continue to discuss what the Lord is saying through Jeremiah. Verse 20 now. Lift up your eyes and see those who come from the north. Where is the flock that was given you, your beautiful flock? What will you say when they set as head over you those whom you yourself have taught to be friends to you? Will not pangs take hold of you like those of a woman in labor? And if you say in your heart, Why have these things come upon me? It is for the greatness of your iniquity that your skirts are lifted up and you suffer violence. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. I will scatter you like chaff driven by the wind from the desert. This is your lot, the portion I have measured out to you, declares the Lord, because you have forgotten me and trusted in lies. I myself will lift up your skirts over your face, and your shame will be seen. I have seen your abominations, your adulteries and neighings, your lewd whorings on the hills of the field. Woe to you, O Jerusalem! How long will it be before you are made clean? That's the rest of our text, Jeremiah 13, that was 20 through 27. So, Dr. Pulse, as you were saying earlier, in verse 20, it seems Jeremiah turns his eyes now toward the future, to the coming full exile. And again, we've got this foe from the north, which, right. I mean, this is the way Jeremiah has been referring to, I assume, Babylon all along, but he hasn't named him. It, it seems that right. that allows us to, I mean, other, other guests have suggested this is part of the eschatological, the end times flavor of Jeremiah, that he only says from the north rather than specifically naming Babylon so often. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know about that. I know that foe from the north, he doesn't necessarily use foe here necessarily this time, but but the idea of the foe from the north is very common among other prophets, and it's always <clears throat> a reference to the to the Babylonians. Oddly enough, I mean, you know, there's certainly the Persians and the Medes come from the north as well, but they never are, uh, of course, they're already in exile when that takes place, but no, the, the foe from the north is almost always a reference to um, to Babylon. 
So as Jeremiah goes on then, where where is the flock that was given you, your beautiful flock? In verse 21, you know, what will you say when they set as head over you those whom you yourself have taught to be friends to you? That's a it's kind of convoluted, I think, in English. What what is yeah. Jeremiah saying there? Well, that's a good question. That's a, a tricky the way the um way the language is here is very kind of Hebraic. Um, there's, first of all, you have the flock imagery, and they're, they're like, uh, oh, is it Isaiah who talks about flocks scattered on the hill without a shepherd? I think Ezekiel also talks that way. They pick up that language a lot. So basically, you have just a quick allusion here to the false shepherds, I think. And the flock is without, without a um, leader, without a shepherd, you know, and that's that's um, always a dangerous situation, obviously for the people who are the, God's flock. So, if the question here is in verse twenty-one, are we talking about? Um, um, I, Jeremiah is famous for not telling us who's who with his pronouns, right? So it could be, a, it could be a dual reference for that matter, but it could be either um, the governors that are set over them by the Babylonians, or it could be those who the, the people of Jerusalem keep trying to set up as their own leaders, you know, assassinating or driving out the governors are supposed to be over them or it could be those who they just seek you know false false um i know leaders prophets you know these who you think have all the answers i mean there's some options here with jeremiah because all these people or all these situations are going on at the same time literally mm. so it could be just a broad term and jeremiah is trying to encompass all of this here um very possible that's that's true it's really hard to figure out though with the hebrew because it's just kind of um it's not very specific there's no question about it the the way that it comes to me and i appreciate you know that, that there's ambiguity the way that the way that it seems to me at least as the esv translates it that it, think of the the history of jerusalem and judah was often one of trying to figure out which foreign power is going to be our friend in this situation. I mean that that was uh, that goes all the way back into the prophet Isaiah, where where Ahaz looks to Assyria for help, and and uh, you know during this time in Jeremiah's life, it seems that they've you know for a while they're a vassal of Egypt, for a while they're a vassal of Babylon. Sometimes they they like doing that, sometimes they rebel against it, and so I guess where I'm where I'm going with that is that it it seems like okay Jerusalem Judah, you think that you've done a good thing by being friends with these people. Well, what happens when they actually, what kind of friend are they, I guess? You know, like, what, what's going to happen when they show their true colors? You taught them to be friends, now they're going to be over you, and it's not going to be so great as you think. That's, again, I appreciate the ambiguity. That's one way that I've tried to make sense of it for myself. Right, right. Well, I think that's, certainly textually, you can argue that, absolutely. But, right, the ambiguity, though, is like, I always think about Jeremiah, and I said this earlier, um, it's such a mess. 
this this whole historical context and time frame and all the things that are going on. Um, I think I said before, you almost need a scorecard to keep track. Everything's changing so fast and everything is falling apart on many levels at the same time. Maybe why Jeremiah is very ambiguous in his language, because he needs to encompass a lot of things all at once. So I sometimes wonder if he doesn't have dual and, you know, maybe triple references here in these particular instances, because they all can fit. And maybe they're all supposed to on one level or another. It's just so hard to know. At the end of verse 21, he brings up the image of a a woman in labor and the pangs that take hold of her. What's, What's Jeremiah preaching there? Yeah, well, this is definitely a, uh, this is not, you know, the the childbirth thing and pangs and labor can be both positive and negative, depending on the context of the prophets. In this case, it's very negative. Um, It's almost like um, you look at what's going on, you thought you had to figure it out, you look at what's going on, and you find out you're completely wrong. And it's almost like you go into labor prematurely, and this was not good. You're you're in this kind of labor, uh, the pangs and pain here. This is not a positive context. It's not like, for now, you are as a woman in labor, but then there's the child, and it's so wonderful, and you forget all about that. Um, that's not what Jeremiah is referencing here, I'm afraid. Yeah, I, I mean, it just really isn't a positive sense to this at all. Hmm. Well, and, and the, that that same sense that's not positive continues. I find mm-hmm. verse 22 almost, I don't know if chuckle is the right word, but if you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? I, I think I, I wrote down at least one. This is not like, how could you ask that question? How could you not know yeah, why, why these things are happening? And yet the Lord has uh, to remind oh, his people right. again. Yeah, I mean, duh, you know, (laughs) it's like you haven't been told. You keep hearing and you keep disobeying, and it keeps happening. It's it's like, uh, you know, the person who keeps having, uh, you know, stop doing that, and it'll be better, right? Mm -hmm. Stop doing it. But no, you keep doing the same thing over and over and over. And I know the Israelites have a history of that, but my goodness. I mean, they hardly go. The, they just keep jumping from the uh, from the uh, pan into the fire. It, yeah. They just keep on making it worse. They keep doing the same thing, like expecting different results. I think we have phrases for that, right? And that's what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, I don't know, who saw that coming? Guys, you just did it five years ago, and it had the same result. Why would you expect it to be different now? Hmm. Yeah, it is kind of one of those head-scratching moments, isn't it? Well, and I, I suppose lest we lest we place ourselves over them, the, those same head-scratching moments come to us still today, where where we we do the same things as Christians. We repeatedly disobey the Lord's voice or or look to idols for help, and then we we wonder why why have things gone this way for us? And, and the Lord has yeah. to remind us still. Yeah, oh no, it's 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 very apropos to uh, the average life of just any Christian. You know, we have this tendency to repeat bad behavior, whatever it might be, 
and then think, well, I can't understand why that happened. Well, what happened last time you did? Well, the, the same thing, but I thought maybe, you know, it's just, it's so common to human nature, I think. Um, the interesting thing about this is it's just kind of a corporate idea, a corporate thing. The whole nation is doing this over and over again. Um, I don't know. It seems it seems like you could find a better leader along the way. Well, of course, God gives them better leaders. He gives them the opportunity to hear the right prophet, the true prophet, and they just keep, well, what does it say? The dog returning to his vomit. Yeah. This is kind of what's going on. They keep doing the same thing over and over again. And the same thing, the same result takes place. Well, it sounds like that the the imagery that he uses in verse 23 of the Ethiopian changing his skin or the leopard changing his spots, that that's kind of what Jeremiah is saying. You keep doing the same thing else and you, you're you not going to stop it any more than a leopard's going to get rid of his spots. Right. You know, it's it's the idea here, I think, is uh, that this evil or this... Um, bad behavior, evil that you've been doing, you've been doing it so long, so much, it has become like second nature to you, or your, your, your spots or your skin has been fixed. And there's, and truly, there's not a darn thing you can do about it. You, and this is what I found fascinating here, is that you can't change your ways. You are so intensely immersed in it. You can't change your ways. However, of course, as theologically, we know that, well, that's actually true, isn't it? We can't change our evil ways. We we need to, uh, it's God who has to change her. And in this case, you know, that's where we're leading to, I think. God is the one who's going to have to change you because you can't change yourself. You're too, uh, you're too immersed in it. You have become this. this has become who you are, and you can't change your spots. You can't change your skin. As as you were talking and as I was reading this text in preparation for our conversation, I, this really reminded me of Jesus' conversation with the rich young man in the in the Gospels, where you know he he comes to him, wants to know what he needs to do to be saved, and the Lord lists the commandments. You know, he, he wants a law. He asks a law question, so he gets a law answer. And, and eventually, when Jesus says, you know, give everything away and give it to, or sell everything you have, give it to the poor, the, the man goes away sad. And then, of course, Jesus, rather than softening it, he turns to his disciples and, and tells them how difficult it is for a rich person to be saved. It's, it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of the needle. And, and Peter and the others ask, well, who, who then can be saved, Lord? This sounds impossible. And, and it's kind of like what, what's going on here. Jesus says, well, with man, it is impossible, but for God, all things are possible. And I, I think that, I mean, I think that fits nicely with what you were saying and what Jeremiah, although it doesn't come out explicitly in this text, that that all of this preaching of law and condemnation that Jeremiah's got is meant to, to lead Judah and Jerusalem to that point so that they recognize the only hope for their salvation is not in themselves, but it is in the Lord. Well, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, otherwise, I mean, I don't know how you're going to take Jeremiah, right? Yeah. I mean, with all that's going on, all the language, it's absolutely true that even though this is brutal, God is setting them up so they will better, so they will see Him in who, in Him and whom their salvation is. 
um, because it's not in themselves. And they, right now they're trying to they're trying to do it themselves. There's there's just no question about it. They still think that they can somehow maneuver, massage, whatever the history and the people and the nations around them to get what they want and save themselves. I mean, again, here's a pattern in scripture. We see it with the Tower of Babel. We see it on and on and on. Man, always, and we do it. I mean, look at our, I mean, various Christian denominations and just individual Christians, all of us, always want to somehow control their own salvation. And as the Lord God is certainly communicating to the people through Jeremiah, uh, you you can't do it. You are too, you're helpless. You're hopeless. There's you, nothing you can do. But that, of course, opens up the reality of, well, then who can be saved? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, and, and what's what's so tragic about the people in Jeremiah's day, and this is was particularly evident in the first couple of chapters of Jeremiah, is that not only had they fallen into this idolatry, but they just absolutely refused to recognize that anything was wrong and, and completely refused to repent. And and when that's the you know, when that's the attitude that is that meets this question of, you know, what can you do about your evil? Well, there's nothing wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. Then, then you're just—I yeah. mean—it's completely hopeless, and that's why you know Jeremiah just has to keep preaching the law in in this you know last-ditch effort to break those hard hearts so that they would come to repentance. Right. Well, and I mean, because this, as bad as all this language has been so far, I mean, really, if you look, I mean, verse twenty-two and this whole skirt business, and then again, the Lord is the one who does that. Lip, uh, verse twenty-six. This is brutal. I mean, this other stuff is terrible. This is brutal. It has such a deep, uh, it just cuts right to the very core of, of the people. You know, this language is like, oh, well, you are sheep without a shepherd. Well, that's a nice way of talking, but it's going to, this language continues to escalate into intense, more intense all the time through here, at least from the standpoint or from the vi- uh, the understanding of, say, your basic Hebrew uh, audience. Mm. Well, what's this is, what's the escalation that's there with, particularly that image that, as you mentioned, is is comes up twice in twenty two and twenty six. What's that escalation that that maybe? I mean, I think it's pretty shocking to us still, but particularly for the Hebrew mind, what's the escalation? Well, the uncovering or the lifting up of the skirts. This is a shame issue and also a violence issue so you know the, the idea really is deeply rooted as a sexual assault issue um but this there's so much it's kind of a euphemism you know feet you know this uh is a euphemism for gen, uh, genitals here i think uh, fits pretty well this is other places in hebrew um although not every place sometimes feet are just feet you know but it is also a euphemism, though, for for the genitals. But this uncovering—I mean, it's such um, this is such a shame and honor society. I mean, that's just uh, it's Eastern culture that to uncover your privates or to lift your skirt up over your head or something like that. This is terrible shame, and shame. Uh, 
to have shame or to be shamed like this is to be, uh, in a sense, just completely ostracized and cast aside um, from your from your society, from the temple, from everything. So there's there's a there's a brutalness to this, and there's even again uh, there's kind of this idea of sexual assault. So here you have an honesty. Here you have uh, the bridegroom. Now Judah is the bride of the Lord, the bridegroom. And now the bride, Judah, has played the harlot. And we see this with Hosea, for instance, you know, the same, same language. But it played the harlot with other gods, especially in this case, other nations. And this is what the result is when you play the harlot. You know, this is, it, it's such a, oh, you know, this relationship aspect of the, of the people even and of the church, really, and we're the bride of Christ. What happens when you play the harlot and chase after other nations and other gods? I mean, this is this is adultery, and this is shame, and this is you know, and all this. And then the Lord Himself is involved in all of this um, in verse twenty-six. This is really, really, um, uh, this really terrible, terrible imagery. The language here very powerfully. Bad. I don't know. I even get the right word here. Well, I mean, I but think it, it's much more. It, it's well, it's something you know. I think that this matter of of shame is something that we we live in a culture that's mostly lost any sense of shame. There's there's very little shame. Right. I think when I look around and and just how sin is so often celebrated among us. It, but so I think there's there's something that we we lose or we've lost that it's hard for us to appreciate that. But just this this terrible sense that of shame that that does come upon the people of Israel, compared to what should have been, I think it is. I think it's the prophet Ezekiel that has that really long chapter about how the Lord, as a husband to his people, just showered her with all these gifts, and and you think about mm-hmm. the way that he intended that to be, they didn't want that, and so th- this matter of shame, it, you know, the Lord basically let them have it their way. You know, you you don't want me to be your husband? Well, then I will let you see what that life is like. And I mean, Jeremiah puts it in very stark terms here that well, what is that life like? It's it's absolutely awful in 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 just any way that you can imagine. And and so we we've, we've got about 4 minutes here, Dr. Pulse. And I mean, you know, there's certainly a lot a lot there that we could talk about where where my mind starts to go because I I know we want to try to I mean, we need to to connect this to Christ somehow. When I think about shame, I, I I think about the shame that Christ suffered in our place on the cross. You know, I mean, talk about the the nakedness of the cross, uh, the shame that He suffered there. That's what He did. He went into this for us again. With about four minutes, Doctor Pulse is, is reflecting on this text. Help us to to see Christ for us through these words from Jeremiah. Well, this this covering uncovering is big in what I would call a garment motif, but in it's in Christ, and we see the whole reversal, right? We get Christ on the cross is stripped, and the shame we see on the cross, the nakedness, the sin, is ours. But you know, yet as you said, it's easy to go back to Isaiah, who's like the the guy who helps you survive the prophets sometimes, and he says. Because he is uncovered, our shame, he bears, carries our shame and bears our sorrows. He hangs on the cross. 
he then, by his being stripped of his garment, he clothes us in robes of righteousness and garments of salvation. So when you see Jeremiah, you know, this how long passage at the very end, think of Jeremiah 31, where he says, uh, I am going, you know, this beautiful text we use all the time. In fact, it's one of the things we like to talk about about Jeremiah and avoid all these others in the pericopal system, don't we? But this idea that that I was a husband to her, you know, she rejected me, but the day is coming when I will. And this is the Lord's beautiful words of, of reconciliation and uh, restoration. So uh, beautiful here in Isaiah 31 or Jeremiah 31. So but this, how long here at the end? You know, there, how long would this go on? You know, all these, uh, what did he say in verse 27? Abominations, adulteries, lewdness, uh, whorings, uh, all over the place. How long? And in that, it's on the cross where we see all of that shame being heaped upon our Savior. And now that uh, we are covered in those robes of righteousness, garments of salvation, which, of course, are those uh, literally the white linen garments in Revelation as the people of God gather around the throne of the Lamb and his kingdom, which has no end. That's that's the beauty of the covering we receive because, well, basically we've been uncovered or even uncovered ourselves and brought upon our own shame. It really starts in the garden, right? So, yeah. There is no shame, and then there's fig leaves, and God says, not good enough. He strips those off, but then he clothes them in those animal skins. And so he so clothes really us. Yeah, yeah clothes he... us in his righteousness. Yeah, amen, amen. He clothes us in his righteousness. Dr. Jeff Pulse is the Dr. Dean Owenthe Professor of Old Testament Theology, Director of Certification and Placement, and Director of Continuing Education at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, helping us today with Jeremiah 13, verses 15 to 27. Dr. Pulse, thanks for being our guest today. Uh, My pleasure. It's been a joy. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Jeremiah, comments on this series, please send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org, or use the new app to record a message on the open mic feature. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.